0: hello everyone i'm abijat Saraswith and you're listening to the fringe legal podcast this is a show where i discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners thinkers and innovators the future is of course a topic that's becoming more important than ever especially in these turbulent times and i do hope you're all keeping well and safe Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today I'm joined by Sam Moore. Sam is the Innovation Manager at Vanessa Paul in Scotland. He is also a accredited legal technologist by the Law Society of Scotland. And today we'll talk about that a little bit, as well as a couple of other things surrounding what the skills are that the lawyers of the future may need or may want to be focused on. So Sam, thank you for joining me. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Av. Thank you for having me on.
0: No problem. Yeah, my pleasure. So we met uh, at Legal Geek, and so we got down to this conversation about your accreditation, which some some of, some work has been written around that. And I'm sure we'll dive into deeper issue around you know skills for lawyers and so on. But let's get started by talking a little bit, if you don't mind, about the accreditation, you know, how that came to be, what that means, uh, and then we
2: can sort of jump into other topics from there.
1: Yeah, certainly. So the Law Society of Scotland first contacted various law firms in Scotland, including Burness Paul, about three or so years ago. And the conversation at that point was just saying, first of all, is there interest in the industry in having any kind of specialism, the way that you have uh, specialists, civil practicers and specialists, uh, family lawyers, that kind of thing. So that was kind of the initial conversation was, do do firms think it would be helpful And once we'd established that the consensus was yes, the conversation then moved on to, okay, what kind of skills do we think a legal technologist ought to have? And and part of the challenge there, of course, is that legal technologist is is not a defined term. It's a a term that's evolved over the last uh, 10, 20, possibly more years. Hmm. And I I personally think that's been a really good thing to start with. I think it was right for the profession to have this very flexible, very broad uh, terminology. But I also saw the value at that point in saying, well, if we do put some kind of certification option down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then it might give people who are coming to the profession fresh uh, framework that they could sort of look to build their skills around and can move towards. Uh, and also give people that uh, possible career progressions, the same sort of way that paralegals can become accredited paralegals, a very, very similar argument. So we fed in to that participation. Other mm-hmm. firms did as well. And over the next sort of two and a half three years uh, the conversation evolved and we society did a lot of research on this and eventually earlier this year they came to the position of being able to say okay we're ready to 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 open the process to our first applicant," which which was myself and uh, me as kind of a test case so I was the first person to go through the process thankfully not the first person to fail the process I didn't really want that <laughs> that notoriety right. but yeah so I think we're now as of recording there's been a about I think about half a dozen or so applications, so it's kind of picking up speed and evolving as it goes.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, and I, think, I very much agree with you that having this broad approach into defining what legal technologies means is certainly the right way of doing it. I, I was reading something which talked about a lot of the technologies as they exist now and what would, they would be like if there was more rigorous framework, right? If you think about what the blogging tools would be like if the publishing industry set out the framework and regulated that, what the internet might be like, what social media might be like, and some of these things you can, of course, argue in hindsight that maybe they should have been regulated a bit earlier. And obviously we're not talking about regulation, but certainly having that framework in place gives direction. And it doesn't have to be that you have to maybe uh, in the future that everyone has to adhere to it. And certainly some of these things will be different across different jurisdictions, whether it's Scotland or England or the US, Australia, wherever else, but there is some guidance because you're probably right as you leave university or as you sort of venture early on into your career in law, I think probably now more than ever, there's a lot of different pathways that one can go down and not all of them are well-defined or defined at all in some instances. And uh, there's certainly a lot of synonymous roles and uh, that all kind of mean the same thing. And there's also a lot of things that are popping up, uh, rightly so uh, every, almost every other month, uh, new roles, new directions as law firms, as businesses adapt to become more business-like rather than just focus and practice.
1: Yep, I certainly agree. And I think law firms are having to become more comfortable with these new roles and it's, it's very hard to, to peg some of these new roles where they sit in the typical hierarchical structure of a law firm. They don't really sit anywhere. Um, and that's a challenge for the profession to get the head around that. You may have to be a bit more flexible about essentially your corporate structure to find the right place to put these, these important skill sets.
0: And what do you think is actually driving law firms to to create these roles, to adopt these roles, and really to have the behemoth of the profession, which traditionally has been somewhat inflexible, I wouldn't say completely inflexible, but somewhat certainly, to be more flexible. What's the key driver in
2: your view?
1: I'd say there are two. The the first driver is perhaps the obvious one, which is client demand. We are looking at uh, a changing landscape for the the industry. Mm -hmm. We're seeing clients now, I think quite rightly, asserting more pressure on their providers, saying, okay, we've been doing this the same way for how many years we can't even tell. Everything else in our world has evolved and moved on and modernized. Lawyers should not be any different. So there's a a, a push factor there from clients demanding that we modernize our business. Right. The other factor, I think, is more internal. It's more of a quality of life aspect. I think uh, people who go into the profession these days, they've got different career aspirations than maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think a lot of the the changes that we're seeing in industry are recognizing the fact that when you go to work in a law firm, whether as a lawyer or whether in some other role, you may have a very different idea as to how you want to work and where that sits in your work-life balance priorities. Mm. So a lot of projects that I I get involved in are what I would call quality-of-life projects for our our staff. And I think that's also a really important important factor is that people just want to work differently.
0: Yeah, I I think that's probably right. And I I think there's obviously... few more than two points there, but I, I, I agree with you. I think that there's a most important and and certainly that quality of life aspect is also driving recruitment for law firms, right? And mm-hmm. individuals deciding which law firms to go to and how much time people spend in practice will change over time and how their practice will change over time as well. Uh, how, I mean, you, you're a lawyer, right? You you qualified as a yes. solicitor. So what was mm-hmm. your what was your pathway into Becoming a, becoming an innovation manager, becoming involved in technology. Is that something that came naturally or because you sort of seconded into a client or you worked in sort of technology or some other sort of team like that where it was a natural fit? How did you get there?
1: Well, before I explain the journey, I'd have to preface it and say that I no way planned this. It wasn't some <laughs> master plan that I had. A lot of it was right place, right time.
0: Right. I've yet to um, meet, by the way, I've yet to meet anyone for whom this was a master plan to end up in innovation, <laughs> technology, or anything like that.
1: So, you know. Yeah, I think we're all converts from some place <laughs> or another. Right. So my original background was as a computer scientist. That was my undergraduate degree. And I I, I came to graduate right about the time the dot-com bubble was bursting. And opportunities were not great for computer scientists. So I went back to university to study law as a graduate. Mm-hmm. And I, I, at that point, thought I want to be an IP lawyer because at that time, trendy topics like Napster were happening. <laughs> and nice. uh, it, it struck me that there was a real need for people to focus in on the technical aspects here. Mm-hmm. So I, I qualified as a solicitor in 2009, which uh, many of the listeners will recognize was not the year you really wanted to be <laughs> qualifying as a solicitor in the UK. Uh, very, very thin opportunities in the ground. So I left mm-hmm. the profession. At that point, and I went to work in house in the construction industry as I'd uh, been working in the construction departments of my training firm prior to that. That was initially a kind of an in house role, but there wasn't a great deal of work there. So mm-hmm. I sort of branched out a bit and began to do more general commercial contract work for that, that business. And I ended up staying there for about six years. Towards the end of that time, I was seconded full time to the Commonwealth Games when they came to Glasgow in 2014. Cool. as a project manager. So I had to retrain and became a project manager. <laughs> right. I, was in, I was in charge of great topics like crowd control barriers and uh, portaloos. So it was all very exciting <laughs> stuff. And I genuinely enjoyed that. But once that was over with, I came back to the profession for Ernest Paul as a construction solicitor. So that was what I wanted to do. And I'd probably still be there to this day doing that, uh, if not for an email from our HR department. So at that time, the firm had been looking at creating a legal technologist position, there are various reasons why that was the case, hmm. but before going to the markets, they had emailed. They ran internally and said, "Do we have anybody in the business who's got a computer science background, ideally some commercial background, ideally a project management background, anything like that?"
2: Right.
1: I, I thought this just sounds like my entire CV. <laughs> right. So I, I put my hat in the ring for that position, and we and I started doing that in 2015 or so. Okay. And it's. It, the role kind of grew around me because at the time, the firm didn't really have a set view of what a legal technologist should be. It's kind of connects to what we said earlier. There really wasn't a definition of what it is. Uh, so we kind of built that around what I wanted to do with the business and it kind of grew from there. And today, that role has grown into uh, innovation manager, which is what I do today.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think, um, weirdly enough, 2015 is when I got into legal tech as well, when I joined a small legal tech startup. And I can... And this is after I've been... I think after, yeah, after I got qualified from the bar in England. And I think looking around, when I came across this startup, I was like, oh, legal tech, it sounds interesting. I don't think there was much of a legal tech scene. Maybe I was just completely oblivious to it. Very likely scenario. Um, But certainly it was in the early days. So I don't think many people knew what a legal technologist should be. And I think, I mean, I think certainly that. That definition has evolved a little bit, but I think if you ask, you know, a hundred people in the room, you'll probably get uh probably not a hundred different answers, but it wouldn't be too far off from you know what that role should be because it is a amalgamation of many, many things. Um, I, I mean, you know, kudos to you. It sounds like very much the right thing at the right time in the right way. So that, that's really cool. And before we go into, and I'm curious about what you think a legal technology should be doing and certainly what the future holds for lawyers and what they should focus on as you were talking about moving from in-house to project management to a law firm do you think that as someone who has worked in-house and someone who has project management skills that makes a a noticeable difference to the quality of work that you produced if you go back to your practicing days you know when you joined the the firm, the quality of work and how you actually presented work to your clients because you kind of knew what the in-house team were looking for and certainly how to sort of map deals and cases and so on. Is that quite noticeable, do you think? Is is that an advantage or it it was something that you did in the past, you kind of moved on from it and just everything was completely different?
1: I think it was certainly helpful. I think the in-house perspective is so, so valuable to the mm. profession and having worked in-house in that environment, coming into to Burness Paul, I definitely had that mindset still. So I was still looking at things the way a client would look at things because I've been doing that uh, for the last five or six years. And in fact, when I joined the firm, almost the first thing the firm did was place me on client secondment, uh, oh, for really? important construction clients. Yeah. And it's very much a case of, this isn't why we hired you, but
2: <laughs> There's this
1: client, <laughs> client requirement. Um, that, that, in fact, wasn't in a legal position. That was to be a commercial manager in the clients to cover uh, to cover a, a vacancy they had at the time. Oh, really? So it was yeah. um, very fortunate to have that, that skill set for them to be able to say, we actually have a commercial manager mm-hmm. who, who could do that. Uh, so almost my first experience of working with the team at Burness Paul was wearing my client hat
2: mm.
1: and kind of seeing how information is being sent across, seeing how project updates are being provided. And also seeing where the sticky points are in certain sort of routine transactions. So when I came back over to the, the lawyer side of the table, I could look at the work I was doing and think, okay, I know this particular area of the project here is going to cause some difficulties. So I'll just reprioritize tasks and I'll get that part front and center. Additionally, in terms of client updates, it is, I think, a well trodden out conversation that lawyers in general were not necessarily the best at, um, at customer service in that regard and client right. updates we tend to be a bit reactive rather than proactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that mindset, I was, I think, far more equipped to recognize that I should be proactively managing uh, these updates to the clients, which I think uh, was well received um, by clients at the time.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I asked that question, no, bit of a leading question, but I, I think it's so important and a number of people I've spoken to for the podcast and just otherwise, those that have had experience of, either being extremely empathetic and having the EQ to sort of see the things from, you know, as you put it, from how the clients will look at things or certainly having been in that position, it makes a huge difference to your offering because you can provide information with the right intent. If you know what someone's going to do with the information that you're providing them, you not only provide what you would normally, but hopefully, you know, you go and you can sort of you know, go with that extra tiny bit to say, look, I know this is what you're going to do with it. So it, here is an executive summary or whatever it might be. And that proactiveness piece that you mentioned is so, I, I think that's just generally in business, right? Just being proactive rather than reactive, where you have the luxury to do so, because I understand completely that it's not going to be in every instance. And uh, sometimes you, certainly as lawyers, you do have to be reactive, but there are certain practices and certain instances where you can be proactive and it I think it means a lot to your clients because it means that you know it shows that you're that they're top of your mind it adds this additional layer of transparency which has been missing generally in the profession for a long long time it's kind of this almost this pandora's box of we'll come to you with a problem You'll go and do stuff. Someone will do some things and outcomes an answer a solution and you go away. I think clients are becoming a bit more educated in. they want to know what's actually going on because they want to see where there are areas of improvement in process and people and technology and all sorts of other things as well.
1: Yep. I think that's certainly true. I think clients have uh, evolved their thinking beyond you'll contact me if there's a problem towards more. I'd like to regularly hear what's going on. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, one client I spoke to about a year or so ago now was saying, you know, "Why do you lawyers always keep the cool stuff under wraps until it's, no, <laughs> until it's no longer new or interesting?" So his complaint really was that we we sanitize things too much and we're never right. just we're never just you know speaking out loud and just chatting and explaining. Here's what we think is going on. I think that's fair criticism. We tend to um, distill our interactions down to kind of short, succinct. You know factual this is what's happening as opposed to more of a broader conversation of mm-hmm. what do you think about x or y
0: yeah, very much so, okay, that's certainly something that should improve generally in terms of let's look into the future, let's say five, ten years, or whatever date you want to pick up what what kind of skills, qualities, attributes would you think are important to lawyers to focus on as they develop themselves, or if they're joining the profession brand new, what, what are the core skills from your point of view they should have?
1: Certainly. So I think I'd start with the basics, which is obviously mm-hmm. a good place to start in most situations. Yep. Um, I think basic IT skills are still somewhat lacking in, in people coming into the profession. So when I was a trainee in uh, mm-hmm. 2007, when I was joining, the kind of IT skills you needed to have then were relatively simple. Being able to use an email client, being able to use words, that was kind of it. Right. Uh, today, though, I really think that people coming to the business need to understand a bit more. Uh, at, at a minimum, being able to use Excel fairly well would be massively mm. helpful. I think that is still surprisingly rare. <laughs> so, um, yep. Being able to get the basics of common office IT to yeah. a, a higher standard than it currently is, I think is going to be not just desirable, but absolutely essential. So once we kind of cover the basics, some of the more, more interesting stuff, if you will, mm-hmm. I think is coming through just now, is some grasp of data analytics, I think, is going to be essential. I think the big fight for market share in the profession is not going to be won by artificial intelligence. Or like that. Is going to be won, I think, on data use. So the firms that can recognize and use the enormous amounts of data they're sitting on will be the ones who come out ahead. And I think that will necessarily mean that people coming into the profession will need to have at least some grasp of data analytics. I'm not suggesting we all become data scientists, because right. we'll probably just hire data scientists. <laughs> and we'll, do, we'll use their expertise for that, that application. But I think it's going to be very important that solicitors at least understand the basic principles of, of what data actually is that they're, they're in charge of and how it can be useful.
0: And would you mind? And I agree with you. Would you mind expanding on that a bit more? So how? I don't know if you have any examples or anything else like that. And the reason I'm asking is, I was reading something on my flight to London last night, and it was all about, I think, around the 2015 time frame. That there was a saying that big data is the new oil, essentially, and that probably is still true to some degree now. But what's what was interesting, and this was around sort of investment in and in essentially technology that analysed data. The shift is happening. What well, the shift that industry is starting to see is that. There's generally, and this certainly does not apply to legal, I don't think personally, but certainly apply to other industries where there are generally good enough technologies that allow you to be able to analyze, present the data and to draw insights, insights from them. What the next mm. tier is or the next big bottleneck, uh, which is where, which means if you can solve that, that's where the money is, is all around compute, right? Do you have enough compute power to be able to solve for X? And I think the, the the companies and technologies that can do that will certainly have a, a huge advantage there. but as law is a little bit behind, when we look at analytics, what how do you see firms being able to use that? what kinds What kinds of use cases do you see for data analytics?
1: Sure. So I'll give you a use case grounded in my my previous life as a construction solicitor. Sure. Uh, So data analytics will be massively helpful in pricing, which I think is maybe the the most important part from an internal perspective. So let's say that I'm working on a large construction project, let's say it's a hotel being built and I'm acting for the developer Mm -hmm. and the developer says, I've appointed so-and-so limited as the architects for this hotel. And my experience might tell me, my gut feel might say, well, I know those architects are particularly difficult to deal with in terms of IP rights, for example. So I know anecdotally that getting their contracts, uh, their appointments, their warranties into final form and signed tends to be difficult. Mm -hmm. However, the data within our systems should exist to validate that theory. So whether it's version control, time editing, email exchanges, whatever, the data will be there to either back up or disprove that assertion that it, because you have picked so-and-so limited as your architects, right. I think I'm going to need some more drafting time or some more negotiation time. But if the modeling is there that says here's the evidence that in on average if so-and-so limited is the architect, you need 45 minutes of additional drafting time, one extra version, and signature tends to take two additional weeks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That data is there. Then we can be proactively saying to our clients, in our experience and based on our data, this is what's going to happen. So we're going to build that into our fee estimate, and then there'll be no nasty surprises later when yep. sure enough, it does take longer to do. So being able to do that across the entire project would enable us to give a far more bespoke pricing proposal to that client and really help them understand this is why we think uh, the project cost will be X and here's our data to back it up.
0: Right, yeah. And uh, I think it was so important how you sort of framed at at the start, which is about validating your gut feel, right? And that's really the key thing, the way I see the use of data is essentially being able to combine the art of law, which is a lot of the gut feel experience and all of the things that you absorb across years and decades of practice and the science, which is sometimes there to help you make the decisions, but sometimes there to just essentially be a a blind spot check or a validation check for what you're assuming to be true. And then turning that into real life value for your clients. So in this case, sort of providing them with a a better estimate for what the future costs might be based on your experiences as well as what the data is telling you. Okay. So. Yep. Certainly. Uh, so we have IT skills, which is basically increasing the standard of things like office skills, uh, learning Excel, and so on. Uh, we have data analytics. Uh, what else makes the list?
1: I think better familiarity with remote working is going to be absolutely essential. So at the moment, I'm seeing, a, and we're probably all seeing, there's a big shift towards remote working being an option. So I, for example, work from home about half the week. Mm. Uh, I think in the future, that might start to swing towards being more mandatory than optional as law firms kind going change their cost base and they change their model. So I think uh, the lawyer of the future really has to understand that from the start. They have to understand what remote working requires of them uh, both in terms of technology, but also in terms of, uh, of, sort of discipline and then how you restructure your day. And I think that will be win-win for everyone, but it's not going to be the easiest transition. There'll be plenty of people even coming out of university um, today who are just not really in that mindset. And I think that'll be an important thing to get their head around is being able to do that because clients are doing it as well. We can't forget the fact that a lot of our clients are now very agile. They work remotely. And yeah. uh, they kind of expect their advisors to, to follow suit. So that will also be very important.
0: Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, they're starting to change anyway. And the huge benefit of that is you get to open up your talent pool from a recruitment purposes to just look for people, you know, everywhere. Uh, and I mean, a lot of tech companies are doing that as it is now. A lot of other businesses are moving to that model. Of course, there are massive considerations that take effect. So, being aware of security issues, right? If you're in a control environment of a law firm, and it makes it easier, of course, you can mitigate that, but also making sure that you're able to support those that are working remotely with relevant technology, making sure that as a lawyer that you are able to do all the stuff that you would normally be able to do from an office, having the, the the things like, you know, Being able to print things and scan things and whatever else you need to do on a day-to-day basis, you know, make calls for BD purposes, can you do all of that from home? And generally people can in this day and age, but it's something that I think still is a weak point.
1: Well, I'm actually really glad that you mentioned security because that's kind of uh, my next point before I get onto that. I, I teach a class at the, the Scottish Diploma in, in legal practice, uh, which is our kind of final stage before the traineeship begins. It's equivalent to your, your LPC in England. And uh, that class I teach is entirely online. We use Zoom software to teach that class. And last year was the first year of doing it. And I was really nervous about having 16 or so law students all join the Zoom software to have this, this virtual tutorial. And in fact, every single one of them managed it just fine. No blips at all. And coming up next year, we have, I think, uh, 24 students in the next class doing it again. And I'm, again, a bit nervous about, <laughs> uh, about is everybody going to be okay? Can everybody get into the, the meeting? Does everyone know how to mute their mic All that kind of common stuff? So I'm, I'm quite encouraged that that uh, students just now who are going to be lawyers of tomorrow are kind of already in that mindset. They're in that world. So I'm, I'm optimistic that this is going to go well.
0: Yeah, and that's a good starting point, right? Because yeah, you want the students to be able to get a handle on these technologies and 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 ways of doing things now, so it's not a massive shock. And then hopefully they will also drive law firms going back to the very earlier point about sort of becoming essentially a a competitive advantage from a recruitment point of view. And mm-hmm. we think about things as a quality of life. You know, does a firm have or any any or in house as well? Do you have the technologies, the the things in place to allow me to work from home to allow me to work in an agile way. And I think that will become very important.
1: Absolutely. And the, the final point I wanted to touch on, as mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, is uh, security. Because you're absolutely right to mention this is a massive growing area of, of awareness that we need to grasp. So data security and cybersecurity are just so important. And I, I think that at the moment, we're going through a phase of, of people trying to catch up with what's required of them. And in my work, I'm assisting with the user experience of rolling out various tools to help with this. And I think mm-hmm. we're in kind of a, as a profession, I think we're sort of in a a plain catch-up stage just now with those requirements and those challenges, and we will need to switch to a proactive uh, footing very, very soon to really get ahead of it. Because law firms being custodians of such enormous amounts of valuable data, yeah. uh, we are targeted on a daily basis as a profession by all kinds of scams and and, and problems. And I think it's going to be extremely important that people coming into profession in the future will be trained this from day one to understand uh, what are the security implications of using cloud services, for example, and what are common cybersecurity uh, things to be careful of. You know, what is spear phishing? What is whaling? We we'll really have to understand these concepts so they can go about their, their work safely and not accidentally put clients, uh, client data in, in, in a risky, risky position.
0: Yeah, very, very much. So. I'm curious why you sort of broke it up into data security and cyber. What, what's the, what, why are those two specific categories?
1: Well, from my experience so far, cybersecurity is usually the resisting, resisting, attacks and being being aware of what you can, you should and shouldn't do in your daily activities to keep information security safe. Yep. Data security is for me. It's more about understanding what goes on behind the scenes. So. And for example, um, somebody in my organization might come along and say, I found this great little app that I like to use. It's for, uh, I don't know, it's for scheduling meetings. So can yeah. I use this app to schedule meetings with clients? And they may not necessarily be thinking about, okay, where is that app hosted? Where are the mm-hmm. servers? Where's the data flowing to and from? Um, are we going to have personal data there, the names and email addresses of clients who are coming to see us? That is sensitive information. So they may not have thought about... The the implications of using that that application, and I, I think we're, we're going to move towards a proactive step with uh, people coming to the profession soon, where they do understand that from the start, and they understand how the cloud works, and they understand uh, why it's not necessarily as simple as they think to use this new shiny app they've seen on on, uh, on on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> right, and
0: if you don't mind, if I play devil's advocate there, so. Uh, I mean, uh, firstly, I'll say, yeah, both of those things are very important. In fact, everything you've mentioned, I agree with. If I'm a lawyer, and my initial reaction may be that look, I'm here to you know do legal work. Why should I spend time doing learning all of these things? Why should I spend time learning how to in, improve my Excel things? Learn about data analytics. Learn about spare phishing or, or other sort of data security issues. You know, there's individuals at the firm that do that. We hire good people, to your point earlier, you know, we'll have data scientists that do that. Why should I spend my time doing this instead of keeping up with the latest regulation about X or learning about, you know, whatever the latest cases might be or whatever whatever you do on a day-to-day basis? Why, why is, you know, how, how do I manage all of that and be a good lawyer?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that it's all about customer service. So I, I can, I am sympathetic to that position. And people say, well, I'm very busy. I'm trying to keep on top of the black letter law. That's, that mm-hmm. should be my job. But that's only half your job. A big part of your job as a solicitor is customer service. And I think increasingly we're going to see a split between people who understand them and people who don't. And a good model to, to look at is what's happening in the banking sector right now where the Challenger banks, people like your Starlings and your Monzos and et cetera mm-hmm. are gaining market share partly on the basis of having a nice app, but mostly on the basis of having really excellent customer service. And I think this is an area which the legal profession has been a little slow to grasp, the fact that basic customer service principles do still apply because we are still a business. So I'd be saying to those people who are concerned about, okay, why is this my responsibility to learn about? Mm -hmm. I'd be saying to them, it's all about customer service. This will make you a better lawyer because understanding this stuff will allow you to give better customer service to your clients.
0: Yeah, good, good answer. And I think you're right. I think generally it just comes down to a shift in what is considered your job, right? And yes, it is very much knowing the back letter of the law. Um, it is very much being able to provide and being essentially customer centric in how and why you do certain things. Uh, but increasingly, these things eventually become part of your job, right? You have a mm-hmm. a duty to ensure that your client's data is safe. You have a duty to ensure that you are aware and educated around how can you work a bit better so you can reduce potential costs for your clients. Um, how can you do certain things that allow you to be able to service your clients in a deeper way in, in order to provide them with, better advice, opinions, and so on. So I think and the reason I bring that up as a devil's advocate is because I think a lot of people do think that way. And it, not just in legal, in every, every every, single segment vertical, you, whenever there's a change where you have to learn a lot of new things. And so these things are very different to what people are doing on a day-to-day basis. The natural instinct is, you know, look, like, do you want me to do my job of x or do you want me to go and learn about these other random things and eventually Mm -hmm. the answer is well actually your job is inclusive of learning these random things right that may seem random to you but we have to be at at the forefront of change i mean we're already playing catch up but in this profession you have to be able to pick these things up and incorporate this into our daily practice
1: Yep, I completely agree. There's an old saying that there are three kinds of work in the world. There's good work, there's fast work, and there's cheap work, and you can pick any two you like. <laughs> and I, I think I think increasingly what we are trying to do with professionals is we're trying to achieve all three because clients expect us to achieve all three. Mm. And you can't necessarily do that by just doing things the same way you've always done them and maybe just work a bit harder. That's just not really sustainable. Um, so I also say to to people in, in the profession who are concerned about, why do I have to learn about this? I say to them, well, it's about doing all three of those, those work streams, it's about finding a way to do the fastest, best, most affordable work possible. Mm-hmm. Very much.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that that was really good. Weirdly enough, I, I just penned an article, actually, that talks about some of the skills for future lawyers. It includes some of these things, I, mean, I think, data analytics is in there, I think about security is in there, but I had not thought about things like remote working. So. It's really refreshing to, to hear that. We're just coming up to time. Anything else that you wanted to, to ask of the audience? Anything you wanted to mention that we missed out on?
1: I would say, just to finish up my, my list I've jotted down here, mm. that uh, r- research skills, I think, are a thing that needs to change. Uh, so when I was a law student, the, the only uh, real research skills you had were the hard copy books in the law library and Westlaw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that was that was kind of it. And to be fair, Westlaw at that time, and I'm talking 15 years ago, was, was not like it is today. Right. And of course, other, other areas like LexisNexis, of course, also exist now. And we've also got a whole raft of challenger legal research tools as well. And I, I think this is going to be something that the next generation of lawyers need to really understand as well, is, is their research skills need to change to be a lot more digitally focused. Whereas in the past, the way we teach lawyers has still been fairly traditional in how you go about researching information for your, your your files, your cases.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that actually made my list. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that was on there. I think I, I took a slightly... I think I just took that as a thing that has to happen for... that you just yeah. needs to make a standard, right? You need to be able to research well, you need to be able to articulate your thoughts well, uh, you need to be able to communicate well generally. And I think sometimes people forget that in this sort of world of technology that you do need to be able to speak to other people and be able to empathize and do all those other things and then research the problems in as thoroughly as possible. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, actually. Fantastic. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me. I'll, if people want to get in touch, if they want to find you, is LinkedIn the best place or uh, somewhere else?
1: I would say LinkedIn is great. You'll find me at Samuel Moore, And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm on moorslaw Law 83. And uh, a penny to anybody gets the joke. Very
0: <laughs> very good. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think you're going to be quite a poor individual, actually, if you keep giving up pennies for that. <laughs> for <you> get that <laughs> joke. Uh, <laughs> I think this is certainly the audience that, that will get it. Uh, fantastic. Well, Might thanks be. again for your time. I'll include links to both your Twitter and your LinkedIn as part of the show notes and appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you. It's been great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show, and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.